So those are the notices. The other notice that uh, I hadn't planned for this morning is that Dave is meant to be speaking this morning, but you're going to get an extra dose of me because Dave uh, is unfortunately not able to make it this morning. So I am going to be giving Dave's talk. He sent over uh, his, his notes, his script. So I'm going to be giving his talk. So if there's anything that doesn't make sense, if I suddenly refer to having three daughters, I don't. Uh, it, it is Dave, uh, but I, I'll try to update a few of the words to make it a little bit more obvious. Um, but I found out this morning he's doing this, so do just bear in mind this isn't my work. This is what Dave's put into it. I'm just uh, presenting it uh, to you here this morning. And so, uh, actually, with Dave, or should we just take a moment of quiet just to pray for him uh, as he's not able to be with us, and pray for us all that the host will be moving uh, as God seeks to uh, move through Dave's words through my mouth. Father God, we pray that you are with Dave now. We pray that you bring him healing. We pray that you bring him uh, peace uh, and joy. And it's the time where he's not feeling great uh, to, to rejoice in you. We thank you for the time he's put into preparing these words. We thank you for the time in prayer he's put into preparing these words. We pray that you'll be moving here today. Even though it's not as we planned, we know, Lord, that you can work in all things. And we pray that you'll be working here today in our hearts, in our minds, in our family, uh, here together in Livingston, that we may be growing to become more, more alive in you, understanding more of our identity in you. So Father God, be here. Holy Spirit, move, fill our hearts and allow your word, your, your plans to be moving in this place. Amen. I'm going to switch microphones now. So this morning, uh, we are continuing in our series on identity. Identity is arguably one of the most important sermon series that we've done, as it's allowed us to step back from the cultural narratives of our age and look instead at who we are based on what God says about us. This morning, we're looking at a part of our identity, which is at the very heart, the core of the Christian gospel, the fact that Jesus died for our sins was buried, and on the third day was raised to life again. That we worship a living God, and that by placing our faith in him, we too are made alive in him. Our main text for this morning is most of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, with the key identity truth being found in verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 15, which says... For as in Adam, all die. So in Christ, all will be made alive. If you're taking notes this morning, then the take-home truth is that if we have chosen to put our faith in Jesus, then our identity is aligned with him as opposed to being aligned with the world. Our identity is that we are alive in Christ. And that truth means that we have this hope within us, that whilst our earthly bodies may fail, in the same way that Christ rose from the dead and went to be in the eternal presence of the Father, so will we. In our culture, we are really, we are constantly sold and told the message that in order to really live, in order to really live, then we need to do what feels good. We need to do what feels right, feels moral, 
feels fair to us. To live fully is to live lives based on our emotions, on our thoughts. That this is the key to happiness and fulfillment, and we are to live true to ourselves. And essentially, have little regard for the consequences of those decisions on those around us. That's their problem, not ours. Our key text this morning, though, tells us that if we align ourselves to this way of living, then it leads to death. If we believe in Jesus, believe that he was crucified for our sins, died, was buried, then rose to life again, then our identity is lined with Christ. Because of his resurrection, we too will be raised to life. This is the hope that we have. If we can begin to comprehend this eternal reality, then how, can, how we live in this age will be radically changed. I also want to take a moment this morning to acknowledge that as we take time uh, to talk about the resurrection and of what that means for us as followers of Christ, uh, it's likely to bring with it a pain about the losses we've had in our own lives. As Dave prepared this week uh, and the week before, he was uh, both excited about the fact that he'll one day get to see his dad, but also he's had moments where he sobbed his heart out as he remembered him, and the heaviness of his loss upon his heart weighed too heavy and caused Dave to pause his reading and his talk preparations. So if at any point at all this morning you need to have some space, or perhaps like Dave, you just need to take a moment, then please feel free to take that moment you need to walk out, get the space you need. The pastoral team have been informed by Dave about the topic that we're going to be thinking about this morning. So they may well follow you uh, out and just check you're okay. Uh, send you a message later on, maybe. Um, and that's just about us being family. Us being family together, walking alongside one another uh, in our lifelong journeys, which do include grief. Now, Christians and theologians have for centuries wrangled over how to answer the question, what is the Christian gospel? And pretty much everyone agrees that 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is at the center of it. Paul talks about the gospel all the time and describes and explains it in a whole variety of different ways. But nowhere else does he appear to do so in such an official way. He says what I'm about to outline in the next couple of sentences is the gospel that I preached to you originally and the one which you accepted. And it is the one which saves so it goes like this, this 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses uh, 1 to 8. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, 
most of them who are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. The Christian gospel is that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared. It's quite possibly the most important sentence ever written down. It's the heart of the Christian gospel, and it's of utmost importance to our identity. Jesus Christ died for your sins. All the things that you've ever said, ever done, thought, which have caused hurt and pain to other people, to yourself, to God. On the cross, Jesus took the place which was destined for you. He died, was buried, rose to life three days later, and appeared to so many different people, and in doing so fulfilled all the promises of Scripture. Jesus is the Christos, the Christ, the Messiah, the King. Andrew Wilson, who's the theologian and teaching associate at King's Church in London, says that this is massively important theologically because it describes in substitutionary and biblical terms how Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures, which lays a foundation for all subsequent atonement theology. That's just a theological term uh, describing how Jesus has reconciled man and God, brought man and God back together. It also includes in it the fact that Jesus was buried, which might seem of little importance until you think of all the various arguments made about how Jesus maybe didn't really die and how the fact that Jesus was not only dead but then buried it goes on to describe how Jesus then appeared to many different people after his resurrection, which has a huge, huge historical implication. The earliest copies of this letter from Paul are dated around 50 AD. And the way they are written, the formation of the wording, uh, uh, indicates strongly that they've been recorded from an oral tradition that date back, dates back even earlier. This means that we here today can, with a large degree of certainty, say when this letter was originally sent to the church of Corinth, many of these witnesses to Christ's resurrection were still alive. As Paul says in verse 6, most of them were still living. The fact that these witnesses were still alive at the time of writing uh, makes it highly unlikely that these accounts were made up. And therefore, there is significant historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. But why does any of this matter to the people of Corinth or, or even to us? 1 Corinthians is a letter to the people of Corinth, and it's split into five different sections, each one addressing a specific issue. Usually, Paul starts each section by stating what the issue is, and they go, then goes on to confront it. He says something like, I hear that there are divisions among you, or now about idle food, etc. He's covered uh, divisions in the church, sexual morality, eating of food sacrificed to false idols and church gatherings. The final section of this letter, though, is different, with a reason for his writing starting in verse 12. 
But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Wow, that's, that's pretty intense. This section is all about the resurrection of Christ and its fundamental importance to our current and our future hope. Now, there are some believers in Corinthian church who have decided that they believe Jesus died and rose again, but the thought of fellow believers being raised, and by that, we're not talking about some immortality of the soul, which was a widely accepted theory in classical world. No, we're talking about the, the promise of the Bible that our physical bodies will be raised and made indestructible and eternal. This was a step too far for some of the believers in Corinth. It's embarrassing, implausible, difficult to explain to those around us, and not really that important, so let's just drop it. I suspect that there'll be many on our own current culture who might relate to this feeling in the Corinthian church. And Paul is horrified at this. He says, if you lose the resurrection of believers, then you lose the resurrection of Christ. And the resurrection of Christ is a central element of the gospel. If Christ is still dead, then everything that Paul ever preached, the faith of the Corinthians and our faith today, entirely pointless. We may as well jack it in and go home. Unless Jesus rose from the dead, there's no Christianity. So the implication of this is enormous. If believers are not raised from the dead, then Christ hasn't been raised, which means our sins haven't been forgiven. Those who have died in the faith are gone forever, and therefore Christians are the most pathetic people on the planet. The situation which Paul is addressing in the Corinthian church could not be any more serious or important. The stakes are stacked sky high, and they remain as high for us today. If Jesus' corpse had been discovered somewhere, then the entirety of the faith comes crashing down. Christianity is the belief in a risen Savior. But why does this matter to us then? If Jesus is still dead, then everything we have looked at regarding our identity in Christ doesn't exist. And we're all lost, hopeless. Everything we've built our lives on is a sham. But not only that, we're to be more pitied than any other people on earth. Everything, everything hinges on whether or not Christ came out of the tomb. And if he didn't, we should pack up now and head home. Thankfully, Paul gives us verse 20, because things are getting a bit intense here. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Hallelujah! This is really good news. Hallelujah! 
in a culture which is increasingly skeptical and hostile towards religion and faith, maybe particularly Christianity, it is crucial that we're solid and secure in our faith and belief that Christ rose from the dead. I think it's vital that we have a good knowledge and understanding surrounding the evidence for the resurrection of Christ in order that we can share it with our friends and family. We can give a reason for the hope that's within us. The first thing we need to be clear about is that science is not going to help us. There is an assumption that the only way to prove something to be true is to use science. We're following the science was used pretty frequently over the past couple of years. There are some parts of science which can help us, but in terms of it bringing a definitive answer to did Jesus rise from the dead, just can't do that. Uh, last week, Dave uh, visited Jorvik Viking Centre in York. Now, I remember that. I remember the smells that they have there particularly, uh, were particularly pungent. Anyways, Dave visited Jorvik Viking Centre in York, uh, a museum which is dedicated to the Viking settlers who lived on the site of the museum several centuries earlier. There is no doubt that the Vikings existed. We know what they ate, what their homes looked like, how they dressed, even the games they played and the gods they worshipped. Nobody questions whether the Vikings existed. But you can't prove they existed using science. You, need to have, you, need, you have to use uh, various forms of historical uh, and physical evidence, sometimes aided by scientific processes, and then you piece these all together uh, to form what's the most likely conclusion based on all these pieces of evidence. Proving that Jesus lived, died, was buried, and then rose again is in many ways about following a similar process, which leads us to ask, what evidence do we have? The main evidence we have come in the form of 17 documents written by different people dating back to the first century, which refer to the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, if you want to look at these documents, you can travel to various cities around the world and see them displayed in lovely glass cabinets. I Dave thinks there's uh, one in Dublin, London, Oxford, and there's various other places around where you can find them. I'm sure Google it and you'll find it. The earliest of these texts is the passage of Scripture we are looking at this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, written by Paul, and has been dated to have been written in uh, AD 55, dated to be from AD 55, 25 years after the resurrection of Jesus. Only 25 years. There are other examples from Scripture outlining the resurrection of Jesus, uh, and these are all positive examples of evidence. That is, that they describe that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead. What is interesting is that there are no negative texts about this claim. No written documents saying all these people claim that Jesus rose from the dead, but we've managed to disprove their theory because we found the body. These 17 texts are written by different people in different parts of the ancient world. And we also know that people all around the eastern Mediterranean accepted the resurrection narrative as historical fact, to the point that they completely reordered their lives around this truth. Large numbers of people sacrificed possessions, families, their very lives, because they believed it to be true. 
Now, large numbers of people do do strange things. Uh, so in and of itself, that's not necessarily evidence, but within the bigger picture, it certainly is an important piece of the puzzle. When all the written historical evidence that we have from the first century points towards a man called Jesus being executed by the Romans, being buried, and then rising from the dead, we need to take it seriously and try to work out an explanation. And we're left with only really two possible, plausible maybe explanations as to what happened on the first Easter Sunday. And these are the two generally accepted views in society. View number one, nothing happened. Many people still believe Jesus of Nazareth didn't exist, which is so odd given all the evidence from both scripture and external historical documents from that time that virtually all scholars and historians, those who are Christians and those who are not, simply do not respond. It would be like someone saying that the center of the earth is red chocolate. It's not worthy of a response because it's so implausible and flies in the face of all the evidence. Others uh, in this camp might say there was a group of friends who mourned their friend's death for a bit and then life moved on. Often they'll cite the argument that the 17 documents we have are biased, as they're written by Christians, and therefore they're invalid. When the definition of being a Christian is that you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, then this is a little bit of a heads-I-win-tails-you-lose situation. So it doesn't really work as an argument. Then there's view number two. The tomb of Jesus was empty on Sunday morning, on Easter Sunday morning. And Jesus appeared to a number of different people over the course of the next few weeks. And they believed they were in the presence of the risen Jesus. These encounters are so numerous that they simply can't be discounted. As we've also mentioned, the earliest copy of this manuscript dates back to AD 55. Uh, and by this point in history, 25 years after the event itself, there were three truths which were widely accepted. Jesus' resurrection was the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures. His resurrection was witnessed by several leading people in the Christian movement. His resurrection resulted in personal hope for his followers. These accepted truths must be considered by anyone asking the question, did Jesus really rise from the dead? The idea of talking about the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus may seem an odd concept in a society and a culture which operates often on opinion rather than fact. Many people will place the statements the resurrection happened in the box marked religious statement as opposed to historical fact. Most people have made up their mind about resurrection, about the resurrection of Jesus without even taking the time to consider the evidence consider it as being a historical event. Assuming that no thinking person would ever take time to consider the evidence, and therefore it isn't worth wasting any time on. The evidence shows, however, that whatever happened on that day, whatever happened on that day, sparked off a movement of people numbering upwards of one billion, which has impacted and changing nations, communities, and individuals for over 20 centuries. It is important that in a world which is entangled and overgrown with skepticism, doubt, and animosity, 
we have the confidence in the historical evidence that Jesus did rise from the dead. Paul tells us emphatically that Jesus' resurrection is the source of our hope. It is the way that we inherit our new identity. Think back to today's talk a few weeks back on how we are all adopted in Christ and the legal status that Christ's death and resurrection bring us. If we aren't totally and utterly convinced that Jesus died and rose again, then all we believe is for nothing. If, however, we do have faith in this historical reality, then it changes everything. Our identity is entirely changed from sinner into saint, from slave into son, from death to life. The verses which follow this declaration that Christ has risen in verse 20 describe why this reality has been and continues to be the source of hope, comfort and assurance for Christians. It says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death comes through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, and so in Christ all will be made alive. But in turn, each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. So Christ has been raised from the dead, and he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. There is great assurance which comes from this phrase. A farmer would look out for the first fruits in his crop to be ripe and ready to pick. They gather them and give them as an offering to the Lord. These initial fruits were so important because of the promise that the rest of the crop was still to come. It was on the way. If Christ has risen from the dead, then he's like the first fruits. He's the guarantee that all who have fallen asleep in the faith will also rise. Because Jesus has risen, you can know for certain that all his people will also rise. When the time has come. Our key verse for today is verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Humanity is all tied to a central head. Either are connected to Adam through our shared humanity or to Christ through our faith in him. If we remain connected to Adam, to the world, to the continual search for significance and acceptance through living for self, then we're dead. There's no hope, no future. If we are in Christ, that is where we've accepted by faith that he died for our sins, was buried, rose again, and appeared to many. Then we are made alive in him. There is hope. There is a future. There is a certainty that just as Christ rose from the dead and went to be the Father, then so will we. We're left with a choice. Jesus rose from the dead, or no matter what the evidence shows, you can't talk about supernatural events when discussing history 
And so there has to be an alternative explanation as yet unknown. But Christ has risen. And then when he returns, so shall we also rise. The resurrection of Jesus is at the very centre of our identity. Because it is him, in him, that we are also made alive. Our identity is no longer tied to the pattern of this world and all the pain and heartache and sorrow that we experience, whilst it'll bring us to a knees in grief, is only for a moment. We live in the now and we live in the not yet. Jesus' resurrection was the first fruits, the guarantee that those who place their faith and trust in him will also rise with him. That one day our bodies will be raised from the grave, made perfect and whole, and we'll spend eternity in the presence of the Father. This is the eternal hope of every Christian, which allows us to endure in this life, knowing with certainty that we have been made alive in Christ. This is the heart of the Christian gospel. And if this morning you have heard that for the first time, or have walked away from your faith in Jesus, then this morning there's an opportunity to receive Jesus as your saviour to take a step into a new identity as one who is alive in Christ, alive in Christ. Then when we start to worship, if this is you, come to the sides here uh, and the team would love to pray for you. I also mentioned at the start that talking about the resurrection and the fact that we too will be raised in Christ can bring grief for those who are no longer with us. Dave particularly found writing parts of this, uh, this talk difficult. And if this morning you would like someone just to pray blessing and peace over you, then this here this morning is a safe place to come and receive. What I mean by that is if you cry, if you sob, then no one's going to make you feel embarrassed. Our core value is family. And standing alongside our brothers and sisters in their grief is something vitally important that we do as part of this. So worship team, if you could come up now, I'll just spend some time, uh, we'll just spend some time in prayer. Jesus, we thank you for the cross. And this morning we declare that we believe that you died for our sins, were buried, on the third day, you rose again in accordance with the scriptures and appeared to many. We thank you in you doing this. You've made a way that we can step into a new identity. That we can move from death into life. That we're made alive in you. We thank you for the assurance that because you were raised, we too will be raised and step into the eternal the eternal presence of the Father. We look for the coming of your kingdom and ask that you would continue to reveal more about who you have created us to be and seal in the truth about our identity, which is found not in this world, but in you. Come, Holy Spirit, breathe new life into each of us here this morning. Come, Holy Spirit, bring new life into each of us here this morning.
Amen.